0: Hello to all of our quality-minded listeners, a special shout out to our Mayo Clinic Care Network members. Welcome to Key into Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast that focuses on healthcare quality, experience, and affordability trends and solutions. This podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps towards understanding and improving quality challenges in your organization. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Dr. Timothy Borgenthaler. I'm a professor of medicine here at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, and I'm the vice chair of Mayo Clinic Quality and Affordability. And co-hosting today's conversation is Sherry Nemec. Sherry?
1: Welcome everyone to joining us today. I'm Sherry Nemec, Consultation and Relationship Manager for Quality at Mayo Clinic. I'm excited to join you today, Dr. Morgenthaler for this timely and really important topic.
0: Oh good, Sherry. Well, you know, this topic kind of came to me really quite accidentally as I was reading some of the uh, internal uh, news items at Mayo Clinic. And I was so pleased to uh, see some very interesting activity taking place and a very interesting guest that I think is gonna really make our time together special. So, you know, the coronavirus 19 disease has undoubtedly affected nearly every aspect of our personal and professional lives. And the good news is this isn't gonna be about coronavirus 19, but we do have to say that it's been incredibly resistant to all efforts to wall it off. And because of that, all segments of our population have been affected. However, COVID has not affected everyone equally. And as the COVID pandemic takes more lives every day across the US, public health officials report that racial and ethnic minorities are disproportionately impacted. You know, For example, the COVID-19 crisis has disproportionately affected the African-American population here at home in the United States, a fact that seriously undermines public health efforts to bring the pandemic under control. This week, we started out celebrating the life and work of Martin Luther King Jr. And among the many incredible things he said, one was injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. In a very real sense, we should consider what it will take to control the pandemic. And I would rephrase this with apologies to Dr. Martin Luther King. Failure to effectively manage COVID anywhere is a threat to managing COVID everywhere. So today we have a wonderful opportunity to learn from a Mayo Clinic colleague, Dr. LaPrincess Brewer, who is the author of a recent paper detailing the work of her group to promote emergency preparedness amongst African Americans during the pandemic. And they used a very special approach, and that's what I'm hoping she'll share with us. So I hope we'll have time to learn more about the magnitude of COVID inequities, some considerations about the why of these inequities, but in particular, some ideas about how to practically address them thereby improving the quality of health care that our organizations provide. So my guest, Dr. LaPrincess Brewer, is a cardiologist and assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in the Division of Preventive Cardiology, the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine in Rochester. She earned her master's in public health from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore. She completed her residency training in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins, and she completed her clinical fellowships in cardiovascular disease and preventive cardiology at Mayo Clinic. She has clinical expertise in cardiovascular disease risk assessment, cardiac rehabilitation, women's health, telecardiology. I mean, she is the person for this moment today. She was awarded highly competitive career development awards, including the American Heart Association Medical Faculty Development Program Award, and NIH Building Interdisciplinary Research Careers in Women's Health, Scholar Award, and many others. And so I'm not going to read her long list of accomplishments because instead, I think what we really want to do is start a conversation with you. So Dr. Brewer, before learning specifics about your study, I'm wondering if you could just share with our listeners a little bit about how COVID has affected different American communities in different ways.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me today. And again, I just just wanted to let you all know that this is a service that you're doing to the community by doing outreach about COVID-19 and sharing that not only at Mayo, but also throughout um, our communities. So unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a devastating impact on marginalized racial and ethnic minority groups, including African Americans, as you mentioned. Hispanic and Latinx Americans and Native Americans. And the pandemic has especially hit the African-American community even harder. And recent data has shown that unfortunately, African-Americans are five times more likely than whites to be hospitalized with COVID-19 and they're more likely to die from it. And this is just unfortunate and unacceptable. And the COVID-19 pandemic is undoubtedly affecting the livelihood of the African-American community and is impacting the ability of community members to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And these are largely related to the extreme burden of stressors that they're facing every day and resulting you know, just really from this extreme public health crisis that we're in.
0: So Dr. Brewer, I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Let let me first, I'm gonna fasten onto the first thing you said they're five times more likely than whites to be hospitalized. What do you think are the reasons for that? Is it, is it related to the risk of hospitalization? Is it related to disease severity? Is it related to delays in diagnosis? I mean, what I'm sure there's a whole bunch of things there, but just share some of your thoughts w- with us.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really multifactorial and not only related. We've heard this term you know, early in the pandemic of pre-existing conditions, But they're also pre-existing conditions that they live in that you know also account for these health inequities and disparities that we're seeing so again there's been this emphasis on uh, pre-existing medical conditions like you know hypertension diabetes obesity you know that does place them at a greater risk for uh, getting COVID-19 than the general population However, there's more to the story. As you alluded to, the pandemic has unveiled a plethora of structural and systemic inequities faced by these communities, especially African-Americans. And these are largely socioeconomic disparities and reflect kind of this deep rooted history that we have in our country of structural racism, including uh, redlining policies, uh, lack of access to quality healthcare, being uninsured or underinsured, food and housing insecurity and unemployment. There are so many more that I could name, but those are some of the most important and relevant to the pandemic, Um, and these are better known as the social determinants of health or social drivers, as my community uh, likes to describe them, of health. And in addition, you know, these communities lack access to COVID nineteen testing centers and more rapid turnaround testing and drive through testing. Just really has not been afforded to these uh, populations, and it's really unfortunate that you know now we're seeing this unfold with the COVID nineteen vaccine rollout plan. And I'll, I'll go on just a little bit here, you know, just to kind of talk about you know Please specifically, do. you know, within that the African American population. Um, many of them are essential workers. So, you know, early on, you know, in the pandemic, you know, they were the ones that were keeping America functioning and, and afloat as a society. And this resulted in their overexposure to COVID 19. And they're in primary service jobs. So, our grocery store clerks, our nurse, nursing home workers, transportation workers, those delivering our food to us while we were sheltering in place, they were out there. So you know, it's estimated that you know, nine out of 10 of lower wage jobs of essential workers are made up of African-Americans. And uh, they don't have the option of working home or you know, teleworking you know, like we are. And many take public you know, transportation, which makes them even more vulnerable to COVID. And many of them still, you know, to this day, do not have adequate PPE to help, you know, prevent COVID-19. So yes, again, the comorbidities are part of the equation of why we're seeing these disparities among these racial ethnic minority groups. But I think these social determinants of health or social drivers of health um, are also having kind of this multiplicative effect, if you will, on why these disparities are just out of control.
0: Yeah, boy, that last point was really driven home to me. It might've been this morning or last night, I was reading an article, I think it was put out by NPR actually, about uh, inequities in healthcare. And they were highlighting some of the problems of a hospital in LA County, where under non-COVID conditions, that hospital which serves a predominantly African-American community, the most common surgical procedures performed are diabetic amputations. I don't think that's typical of most of our hospitals, but it it tells you those who are listening to this podcast who are involved in healthcare, that speaks very deeply to the depth of comorbidities in that community. And that's a huge risk factor for bad outcomes from COVID. So I that really flavored that with my, as I was looking forward to this talk, I thought, whoa, that is really something. So your work was recently published in the journal preventing chronic disease and it focused on a very specific intervention among a group of African Americans in Minnesota. You talked about a community-based participatory research partnership amongst African American churches. Tell us about this endeavor, this effort I mean how did you come up with this idea? Just go I mean this is really interesting for us.
1: Yes and uh, you really you know spoke to why I do this work in highlighting, you know, the disparities in the the California hospital. So I'm a preventive cardiologist and, you know, many of the patients that I see and and those that are within my research studies are burdened with these risk factors. So I'm trying to protect my patients and my community. So I, I had to find a way to use my expertise and skills to help combat the pandemic as well. So I'm the founder and um, principal investigator of the FAITH Cardiovascular Health and Wellness Program, and FAITH is an acronym, so every good cardiologist and researcher has to have an acronym, right? So, you know, it stands for um, Fostering African American Improvement in Total Health, and as you mentioned, we use a community-based participatory research or CBPR approach to develop genuine relationships with organizations serving marginalized and socioeconomically disadvantaged groups. And we currently have partnerships with African-American churches and community health centers here in Rochester, Minnesota and the uh, Twin Cities area. And we have over a decade of collaborations with African-American faith communities and improving health outcomes in this population. So to just give you a little bit of background on CBPR and then I'll kind of get into What we outlined in our paper so CBPR is a form of community engaged research in which community members are involved throughout the research process from you know conception of the uh, research questions study design and actually implementing um, the project to dissemination of the findings similar to what we're doing here. And CBPR, you know, emerged in light of the growing recognition that our traditional research practices have failed to resolve many of those health disparities that we talked about earlier. So community members have also expressed discontentment with the research process and they feel that the findings are not directly of benefit to them. So they've been feeling, you know, exploited and used. So we are hoping to serve as a bridge, if you will, between investigators and the community for the benefit of their health. You know, it's been a blessing to be able to forge CBPR partnerships with our community partners. And, you know, CBPR truly embodies what we call team science. And we're on a quality improvement podcast here, but, you know, team science really does improve health outcomes. It's also known as action research.
0: Yeah. Some of our listeners will probably be familiar with PICORI or patient-centered outcomes research. And so to me, this sounds like targeted patient-centered outcome research, targeted around specific communities who, from what you're sharing with us, feel marginalized or feel like they haven't been adequately broadly included in those research efforts. Is that kind of a, a correct conception of, of the effort?
1: Yeah, so community-engaged research, it's a continuum, if you will. So there's from community-placed research all the way to community-based participatory research, which I do, which involves all of the community and patients in designing studies and implementing and uh, patient-centered uh, or centered and oriented uh, research also falls along that spectrum. Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, your acronym is FAITH, and it's based around African-American churches, as you conceived of, you know, how you were going to go about your main goal, which was to really improve the outcomes and, and improve the reach for these communities, what was it about the churches that, you know, what, why did you aggregate there? What, you know, what, what moved you there?
1: Yeah, so African-American churches have been, you know, the, the longstanding trusted institution within African-American communities. And our faith leaders are, you know, those who our communities trust. So we felt that engaging with the faith community and the leaders, whether it's the church pastor, the first lady, or you know the auxiliary leaders of the health ministries, would be best in order to disseminate this information in a rapid manner, and to also garner buy-in, if you will, from the community. Mm
0: -hmm. So to me, it sounds like you're making the observation that um, the scientific community at large, research at large. There's not necessarily excellent trust between these communities that, you know, this larger medical healthcare system is going to take care of them. And for good reason, What we've already talked about. And so you're really saying, well, one place to focus where there is trust is in these African-American church communities, because they're well-established and there is trust there. And so you're really, you know, asking them to take you along as partners in the healthcare of those communities. Is that- Accurate.
1: you eloquently stated that.
0: (laughs) Wow. So, okay. So you've given us that broad overview and thank you for that. So tell us what was this particular effort about? What did this group do as regards COVID readiness and so So, forth? So,
1: you know, my research team here at Mayo and uh, colleagues from the community, you know, recognized early in the pandemic that there were these emerging COVID-19 disparities in communities of color. And we deploy community outreach to these trusted venues, African-American churches and community health centers uh, within African-American communities with the goal to disseminate accurate and trusted health information to those who were most vulnerable, as I mentioned. Um, you know, even within these churches, we have essential workers. So, you know, we leveraged our established network of over 100 African-American churches to implement what we call then emergency preparedness COVID-19 Risk Communication Plan. And we utilize and integrated the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Guided Framework. And the name of that framework is the Crisis and Emergency Risk Communication Framework. And it has four phases that we used in outlining our plan in detail. So there's the preparation phase when you're kind of creating your plan with your stakeholders and community partners. And in our case, it was the African-American churches. The initial phase um, is the second phase in which you're promoting action and response efforts. And then the maintenance phase is when you're explaining their ongoing risk. So their ongoing risk of COVID-19 has not gone away even to this day. And then the last phase is uh, resolution. So motivating vigilance and evaluating what you're doing for continued quality improvement. And the plan was you know, twofold. So it included support to establish emergency preparedness teams within our church network. And then we launched a social marketing campaign, if you will, to provide accurate COVID-19 health information to this network. So first, um, with all quality improvement, you need to do a needs assessment. So we did actually a survey of the church leaders and they indicated what their top three resources needs were. And those were financial support, food utilities, and accurate COVID-19 information. As you remember, kind of early in the pandemic, there was just so much going on. We didn't know as much as we do now. So it was hard to know what was fact versus fiction. And also early in the pandemic, there was this myth going around that African-Americans were somehow immune to COVID-19. So clearly that was not the case. So, you know, we provided, you know, churches with an emergency preparedness manual from the Humanitarian Disaster Institute called Preparing Your Church for COVID-19 to offer them guidance on how to do this. How do you establish an emergency preparedness team? And then we provided them with kits, um, emergency preparedness starter kits to help launch this in their church. And as far as our social marketing campaign, we created a Facebook page and email blast dedicated to disseminating this information on COVID-19 that was up to date as it was rapidly changing. Um, as you can imagine, you know, uh, being in a lay audience, you know, you don't, it's hard to distill, if you will, all the information that's out there. So we were helping them by doing that. You were the
0: distillers. Um,
1: yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And the social media campaign was, this was what was interesting about our approach. It was led by community members, um, and we called them communication leaders, and it included uh, community health workers and a financial advisor. So remember, remember, I mentioned that financial support was, you know, one of the resource needs that they mentioned. So our financial advisor was, uh, you know, posting videos um, explaining the, the CARES Act out of budget where can you get assistance you know with your utilities so it was extremely helpful to our community and they're trusted messengers you know within the community mm-hmm. i can say one thing but it may be trusted more by someone from that community and you know we reached an estimated 12,000 individuals through our campaign so it was very successful right. and i could not have done this without the support of our community
0: So, wow. I mean, that's just a, that's a very big undertaking. I have to ask you just a couple questions about it. You know, you first went and did a needs assessment and then you developed these tactics and your tactics were really going to be to help them establish emergency preparedness teams. And then this social marketing campaign, what does the emergency preparedness team look like in a church? I mean, you know what, tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So you, you definitely need First, uh, a champion, if you will, that's going to lead that. You know, the the, and and that can be in the form of the the church pastor, first lady, or someone from the health ministry team. But we wanted to make sure that this was a dedicated effort because it, it takes that because emergency preparedness is not only you know just for COVID 19. It's also for other things. So as I mentioned, you know, if you can't pay your rent if you've lost your home, your job, who do you turn to? And most of these community members turn to their church. So as a part of, you know, the team, you know, we we do recommend that if there's someone with a health background, you know, within the church to be a part of it, being that what we're promoting is, you know, COVID-19 prevention. We also wanted to make sure that their team had a plan for communication of what we were providing to them. Mm -hmm. So do you have the infrastructure? Do you have a website that you can post things? Do you have a list serve or do you actually call people with this information? You know, another thing that's, you know, truly, you know, important with an emergency preparedness team is is also the outreach. So in the times of emergency, what plan do you have for outreach to not only your congregation, but to the community? So many of our churches in establishing their emergency preparedness teams wanted to have, you know, food pantries or food banks, if you will, are partnering with others to serve their community. So I think, first of all, again, you need a champion that's going to take this on as I'm the emergency preparedness team leader. And then you build the team based on kind of the needs of the church.
0: So these teams, it sounds like they functioned as, you know, like when you're in trouble, who do you turn to? I go to the team. And so they were the aggregators of knowledge about resources and in some cases, just material sustenance. Uh, yes. But also, <laughs> it sounds like on you know this same team. Then part of what their charge is is to help with the communication efforts to get the word out.
1: Exactly. Uh, both
0: you know facts. You know, like let's get the medical facts out there. Let's get people to, to be aware of what resources might be available. Where do they go for help? That type of information is that exactly. is that a good description of that? Yes. Yes. Well, so and the second the second question I had for you is, you sort of hinted that you identified trusted messengers. You know, how did you go about doing that? You know, I think there's a lot of people listening to this call that would like to learn how can we get information out about different offerings or things like that? How do you go about finding those people?
1: Yeah, so I was fortunate to have, you know, an established community steering committee, and how we look for these folks is that we actually ask the community members, we're like, who do you trust? Who would you want to be a part of getting your voice out? And we actually interviewed every person on our community steering committee and asked them, why do you do this work? And how do you feel you could contribute to what we're doing? We look for people who had a you know, trusted reputation, of a credible reputation within the community And they had links, actual links to the community. So they were actually doing things in the community, Mm -hmm. not necessarily just holding a title, but they were actually doing community outreach. So with the community health workers um, that were part of our group, they are are both from the churches that we're part of, um, that we're partnering with, excuse me, and and as well as some of our research projects. Uh, They were already previously involved with us. So we pretty much leveraged established networks that we had.
0: Yeah, it's obviously a service that you've been providing, but it's also part of research. What what were sort of the findings of your research?
1: Yeah, so uh, yes, I am a clinical investigator, um, and I did want to um, integrate a research component to this, and and we initially were hesitant because of just how urgent the situation is, but putting on my research hat, you want to make sure that you evaluate what you're doing so that you can improve upon it and then develop future interventions. So we found that over 70% of our churches that were involved did not have an established uh, emergency preparedness team or ministry. And That was definitely, I wouldn't say shocking or surprising, but it it just showed me that there was more work to be done and that um, what we were doing was worthwhile. Really strengthened the need to do this work because as I mentioned before, this is not gonna be our last emergency or pandemic. So I want them to be ready when it does happen, um, whether it's, you know, hopefully not another pandemic, but it, you know, again, it could be something you know from a natural disaster or with their congregation members. So, you know, this is a part of building post-COVID-19 recovery and community resilience. And as a part of the research as well, within our survey, you know, we asked them, what are your trusted resources for health information? And we were so pleased to see that the number one trusted resource was Mayo Clinic um, over even the CDC. It really showed the value of doing what we're doing and that we built this credibility with this group and it's motivated us to keep going.
0: I think that's really an important message there for our listeners to hear because when a healthcare organization reaches in to learn different ways, more effective ways to be a part of the solution for problems that people really have, they become essential in a way to that community. And that's a very powerful and important stickiness that healthcare organizations need. So I'm aware of other groups of colleagues here at Mayo that are members of a, of a something called the Rochester Healthy Community Partnership COVID-19 Task Force. So they're, they're doing some work too. How does your work and their work kind of meld together?
1: Yeah, so it truly has been an honor to learn from and model the outstanding CBPR, community-based participatory research approach utilized by the Rochester Healthy Community Partnership Task Force, COVID-19 Task Force. And, you know, that's led by Dr. Irene Sia and Dr. Mark Whelan here from Mayo Clinic. And similar to them, you know, uh, we established a faith COVID-19 task force in order to implement our emergency response efforts. And this was a subcommittee of our group and of our established sorry, faith community steering committee that I mentioned to you earlier. And really this helped us to provide more infrastructure, you know, around what we were doing for our community outreach efforts for COVID-19. And by having this infrastructure, you know, it allowed us to simultaneously continue our, you know, primary work and focus on, you know, promoting cardiovascular health and wellness within the African-American community, while, you know, somewhat repurposing, I always like to say ourselves, to address the COVID-19 pandemic. And learning from, you know, the the Rochester Healthy Community Partnership, you know, has allowed us to have, you know, quality improvement within our steering committee. You know, as we were, as I mentioned before, able to leverage the expertise of our community members to rapidly implement our efforts.
0: So you started hinting at it here, uh, kind of the next question that I was thinking of asking you is, you know, so far we've really talked about these efforts as they relate to COVID. And, and all the things that have been happening very, you know, abruptly with that. But what other chronic conditions do you think might benefit from these kind of approaches?
1: So, you know, community engagement is so essential. And in my opinion, you know, it should be the norm. Um, this should not be viewed as something novel or unique in clinical research and educational practices, you know, in order for us to achieve health equity And it truly can be applied to address nearly any health inequity that exists, whether it relates to a chronic medical condition, enhancing the diversity of medical education or addressing the social determinants of health, like, you know, food or housing insecurity. And community engagement is also key in addressing, you know, many of the valid and, you know, understandable COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing amongst racial ethnic minority groups. So we really have to meet people where they are, you know, with humility and the ability to listen, because, you know, otherwise we're not going to make an impact within these communities that really need us the most. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. So community engagement, we could have a long conversation because it's really fun listening to you and and you're so knowledgeable in this, but let's say you, you were going to one of our listeners' organization's. That's just wondering, you know, how do I really get started in community engagement?
1: What are the first steps they should take? I really do think that, again, it, it takes kind of humility and going outside of your comfort zone and meeting people where they are. And what I mean by that is, you know, coming to them and saying, you know, I want to know what do you want? How can we work together versus meet you saying, oh, well, this is what I think you should do. Here's my plan. What do you think about it? You know, it's more about partnerships and you know coming together with this kind of bi-directional communication. Um, so I, I would say starting by just having a conversation with you know those who are in need, mm. and it's not that they don't want to have a conversation with us. It's just that they haven't been asked to be a part of the conversation.
0: Well, wow. I mean, this has been so interesting, and I just want to again thank you for sharing your insights and especially sharing your passion and your work. And please keep contributing to our learning so we can all improve the quality of care that we're delivering. We unfortunately are coming to the end of our podcast. We're really glad that everyone could join us and hope that the information provided has been insightful and valuable. And again, Mayo Clinic's Key Into Quality podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps to address important quality challenges in your organization. The development of this podcast is part of our effort to be a valued resource to healthcare organizations striving to improve. Our goal is to improve quality for patients and the populations that we all serve. So please let us know what you think of this podcast. If you enjoyed it, let others in your organization know about it so that the information can be spread. Until next time, goodbye.